Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Stretch your legs, remove or add clothing, for those of you that make the commitment to coming here each week, I'm going to try and speak in a way that's cumulative, and uh, for those of you that weren't here, try to speak in a way that's accessible. Mm -hmm. So I'll just say a few words and then we can talk together. And uh, I'll start by just going over a couple of passages from uh, the Arya Pariyasana Sutta or our description of it. First, one of the passages from the Buddha that uh, has made its way into popular culture uh, these days, thanks to the punk rock Dharma teachers in California. Um, This passage that we were trying to tease apart um, last week, those died, or those immersed in desire will not see what goes against the stream. I translated last week. Those immersed in wanting will not see what goes against the stream. Those immersed in wanting, tanha, craving, will not see what goes against the stream. And the stream in this case is the stream of culture. But it's more than the momentum of culture. It's the tendency in the mind to find a way to create permanence in this temporary existence. Our feelings are temporary. Our relationships are temporary. Our emotions are temporary. Our viewpoint is temporary. And so there's a way where we can use our imagination to give us a belief system that seems eternal. And so what we were talking about last week and what I promised to get to next week, 
uh, are certain passages in the Vedas and the Upanishads that the Buddha is referring to here, where there's this notion that a spiritual practice is a practice in which we look so deeply into things that we see the essence of them behind their manifestation. Okay, so I have to look behind this floor to see God. Or I have to look behind uh, a tree or inside the tree to find the spirit in the tree. Or there's a soul that's inside me somewhere, which then creates a dualism because there has to be a me and an inside so that what's just appearing is not sacred. We have to look behind it. And so when the Buddha gives his instruction in mindfulness, and I promised I would read it this week, I was referring to it last week. Um, Here's what he says. Here, a bhikkhu goes to the forest, or to the root of a tree, or to an empty hut, or a garage in Parkdale, sits down, having folded her legs crosswise, sets her body erect, and establishes mindfulness in front of her. Ever mindful she breathes in, mindful she breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, he understands, I breathe out short. This is called mindfulness of the body. What is so striking and radical about this teaching is that if you pay attention to the breath, whether it's short or long, you don't change it. You're not looking behind the breath for something. You're not looking inside the breath for the soul of the breath. You're just treating whatever is present as um, that which you meditate on. But what happens is, and this is true in every spiritual spiritual tradition, where the priestly class comes in and they take this and they reinterpret it so that householders feel like they have to go out of the household to do the practice to get somewhere. And you can hear how it's very easy to use that language here. But the Buddha is saying whatever is occurring that's what you pay attention to. Moment to moment, non-stop flow. Whatever is occurring through the six sense organs. So that's the five sense organs and the mind. That's what you pay attention to. You hear sound, noticing sound. Breathing in, breathing out, noticing sound. Breathing in, breathing out, pain and knee. Breathing in, breathing out, sadness. Breathing in, breathing out, tired. But the tiredness is temporary. So my grandmother always says, if it's one, not one thing, it's another. And so you don't have to be Jewish to have this insight. If you just pay attention to how things are, then what you notice is provisionality, is transience, is the way that everything is changing. Anitya is changing. Changing. And that is a ground. 
we were talking about last week is how you can have a ground that's groundless, like water. Water's moving, but it can sustain you. You know those bugs that have those long, thin legs that can just stand on water? You know, they're standing on transients. Or this floor. This floor is highly impermanent. So you look around in your life and you see how there are certain things that you treat as permanent. And what you treat mostly as permanent is your viewpoint. And in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, this is what the Buddha addresses. And this is, just to repeat from last week, this is the Buddha's description of his enlightenment. In the Pali Canon, there are two descriptions of the Buddha's enlightenment. One that was probably written by a lot of people that describes the Four Noble Truths and is so formal. But this is the Buddha's personal description of enlightenment. The Dharma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and consequent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. My favorite line. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It's hard for people who delight, love and revel in their place to see this ground. In other words, what we delight in, which is a very elegant way of telling you how much you cling to something, (laughs) what you delight and revel in is having a viewpoint So when something arises in your life that is unexpected or there is something uncomfortable arising, you go to your therapist and you talk about it. And then you create a viewpoint so that you can understand what's happening with the assumption that the understanding of the pattern is going to release the pattern. And that is delighting in a viewpoint. Okay? But once you see the pattern, and of course, there are very helpful ways of finding out a pattern when it's been unconscious. But once you see the pattern, you need the skill to let the pattern go. And the first skill is to notice vividly, viscerally, how whatever you're experiencing is transient. And because of that, it doesn't belong to me or mine, because the notion of me and mine is also self-constructed. A monk is very confused about this, and goes to his teacher, Joshu, and says, does a baby have six consciousnesses? So if you know the Abhidharma, you know there are six sense organs, six senses, so there's six consciousnesses. So this is a very intellectual question. Right? Very confused, maybe. Trying to understand. Does a baby, is like saying, does a dog have consciousness? Does a baby have the six consciousnesses? And Joshu replies, a ball thrown into a river. <laughs> and the student says, what is the meaning of a ball? thrown into a river. And Joshu says, 
non moment to moment non stop flow. Moment to moment non stop flow. You've heard me say this before that you don't practice compassion. You don't practice mindfulness. You are compassion. You are mindfulness. You are moment-to-moment non-stop flow. You see? And so, why the Buddha calls his teaching going against the stream is because we're not looking for something. The, the problem in the practice is the looking. Mm-hmm. So last week I asked you to do a partner exercise and then some homework. For those of you who weren't here, the we got together in partners, and you asked your partner, "What, Jacqueline? What did we do? Can you can you remind us what the question was?" Um, well, right now, what do you want the most? Yeah. Yeah, like this week. What are you wanting? Yeah. And um, then the homework assignment was a vow. This week, when the wanting comes up, instead of exploring the object you want, so I'll give you an example. I'm walking along Queen Street, and I see this fabulous dress that I really, really want. This is hypothetical. (laughs) (laughs) And all I can think about is this dress. So then to persuade myself to not get the dress, I start analyzing the dress. It's made in China. I don't want to buy something from China right now. I don't have enough money. I think about the bank account. And then the wanting passes away. And I think that because of the analysis, I've made the wanting go away. Does this make sense? But the skill has been missed, which is learning how to work with the wanting. Because the problem is the the contraction in the wanting which gives rise to the dukkha, or the feeling that you lack something. So this goes against the stream of accumulating capital. It goes against the stream of trying to work just in the realm of viewpoint. And so the key is a ball tossed into water. That's your ground. Moment to moment, non-stop flow. Vigilance. Impeccable intention. Noticing from moment to moment how things come together and come apart. A feeling arises. Has anybody here started making soup with root vegetables yet this season? Yeah? Like... Now is the time to be hanging out at farmer's markets. I have this addiction to farmer's markets where I go every day, I figure out which farmer's market I could go to. And then I go there and hang out. Um, But I only take $20 because they're dangerous. And uh, I wear a dress. (laughs) And uh, when you cook a soup, if you're looking down at the root vegetables, every once in a while, like a potato pops up, and then like a carrot pops up, and then a beet pops up. And actually, if you're cooking beets, they all look the same. 
But this is how meditation works, is in awareness, you're looking at the surface of the soup, and then like a feeling arises, an image arises, a sensation arises, joy arises, envy arises, greed arises, competitiveness arises, whatever it is for you. These are just like vegetables in the soup, popping up, and the practice is just churning, churning the energy in the context of stillness. So most of us, we never get to see the arising and passing away of these phenomena from a place of stillness. And the Buddha is saying, that is the heart of, that is the core, that is the way you untie the knot that you've tangled yourself in. And this is a really interesting approach to our discontent. So, now let me ask you, first, before we get to the homework, how is the sitting practice? What's happening for you? The instruction is very simple. Inhaling, notice, feeling, inhaling, exhaling, feeling, exhaling. This is very advanced. So, how did it go? What do you notice? Without editing. I notice the gentler the eyes, the easier it goes. The gentler the gaze, the easier it goes. When the eyes are receptive, they're just receiving. (coughs) They're not looking Mm -hmm. for anything. And this loops back through the palate, Mm -hmm. through the respiratory diaphragm, through the nervous system, through all the sense organs. Receptivity. Someone else. Now's your chance. Breakfast bar came here and I was eating really good dessert. And I'm sort of sad to come and be side tea. <laughs> and then as I was doing the breathing, I really felt like, oh, I wasn't actually hungry. And I could really just feel the air and feel mm-hmm. the sensation of, of that. Yeah. And it felt really filling in this sort of this little way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Someone else. Um, at one point I felt a very um, full feeling of you know, well-being and you know the anyway I really dug it and then it went away you know I got it you know I started to feel that yeah yeah, oh, yeah you know as soon as you um, yeah. as soon as I met it and started having yeah. a good time with it it went yeah. away but so if you slow that down mm-hmm. <coughs> what was the transition point between experiencing what sounds peaceful mm-hmm. and then this kind of agitation that happened. Uh, it wasn't really agitation because I've sort of been there before. Okay. I go there all the time uh-huh. where I notice uh-huh. what a great time I'm having or yeah. how peaceful I am uh-huh. or how I'm not dialoguing with myself. Uh-huh. But of course, that's just feeling. Yeah. yeah, so it's fascinating to notice that there's this gentle awareness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very stable. And then, the voice and then you become aware that I'm not dialoguing with myself. Right. 
And then you go, shut up. And uh, so a separation is created. And that separation is what we call dukkha. Is the separation that's created when we create an object. Because as soon as the object is created, the self is created. And you can't have a dialogue. There's no self there. So a moment before, there's no self there. There's just what's happening. And then I came back. Yeah, and then you insert me in there. Um, and you didn't insert it, actually. It's just the momentum. So if you say, I inserted the me in there, then you're in trouble. <laughs> but when you see that you didn't actually insert the me in there, it's just the conditions of the momentum of the eye-maker storyteller um, are such that when the storyteller senses its absence, it does everything it can to find itself planted firmly. And so what it does is, as soon as anything interesting happens in the meditation practice, the eye maker, the ahankara, comes and says something about it. Mm-hmm. Okay, And this is always going to happen, and it's never going to stop. Okay, so that's why you need to catch it, because that's just its function. And then when you catch it, you can see its function. But usually we don't catch it, we believe it. And then we're caught in its story. And then we're in a virtual reality of narrative, you see. But to be very, 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 very clear, the storyteller never stops. Okay? Right. Yeah. Like, the storyteller is great. Especially if you have a sense of humor. Because <laughs> you just see it doing its thing. Okay? But some of us, and I'm sure this doesn't happen to any of you, have been trying for many years to get rid of the storyteller. <coughs> to kill your ego. To overcome, to transcend your ego. But the ego is just a mechanism doing its thing. And once in a while it is quiet. But then it's going to notice the quiet and come back and think that that was cool. And then you're going to tell your teacher, hey, this really cool thing happened to me in meditation. (laughs) And then they're going to say, a ball thrown into the river. (laughs) Moment to moment, non-stop flow. Which is another way of saying, pay attention. Look what you're creating here. Pay attention. And that's why we have a bit of form. The least amount we can use. But the form itself is empty. So we don't even cling to it that much. Actually, we're talking about water as the ground because the Buddha is always using water as the metaphor of life. And his most famous example of this is when he said, you know, all this technique is just a raft that we use to cross the river. But every moment that you experience a crossing of the river, forget the raft. Okay, so the raft, and what I like about this is it's not a ship. It's not a beautiful birch bark canoe. (laughs) It's not a cedar strip canoe. There's no horsepower. It's just a raft cobbled together. And that's how he thinks of these teachings. It's just a cobbled together raft to float across the river. But 
the mind then goes, oh, I'm going to float across the river and then I never need the raft again. But that's temporary. One of the beautiful things about the Yoga Sutra is that samadhi, of which there are eight stages, is temporary. So deep forms of concentration are temporary. Then you have to get up and you have to go pee. You have to go get root vegetables. And so we embrace the temporariness. And then we love it like crazy. So that you see, we were working on this earlier tonight, you see that your relationship with your lover is temporary. And so you love them like crazy. Because it's temporary. Your cat is temporary. Given to you by the cat gods. And it's temporary. So watch where your identity gets entangled in temporary phenomena. And then when you can release your viewpoint, then love is possible. Because when your viewpoint is seen as a viewpoint, then there's no expectation. And then love just bursts forth. And uh, then the practice is working. Somebody else? There's one point. Oh. Sam, you go first. Oh, I was going to say, I know it's a real um, association between breath and physical pain in my body like I've never experienced. Mm-hmm. Like my whole left side mm-hmm. is just going over here, pay attention to me. Mm-hmm. And then I really sharply go back into the breath. Yeah. Right back to my whole left side is killing me. Yeah. Ow, 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 ow. Yeah. And then I focus a little bit on the pain, and it somehow yeah. dissolved, and then I went back into the breath again. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's the first for me. I've never experienced that before. Yeah. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> the um, the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of feeling. Which means, as you breathe in and breathe out, track feeling tone. Positive feelings, negative feelings. But this aren't, these aren't the feelings that we call feelings in English, like sadness or um, depression or anxiety. Uh, so in Buddhist and yoga psychology, those are considered mind states. The feeling is just the tone of the sensation. Does this make sense? So it's not a certain kind of feeling. It's just you're just tracking this movement of feeling until you become that pain. No separation. Breathing in, breathing out. Otherwise, the mind goes, oh, this is my pain in my body. I don't like it. And there's all this me, 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 me. And then there's all this separation. And then there's discontent. And then there's a loop, feedback loop that starts. 
where the trying to get out of the pain creates in the nervous system and the breath increased pain. Rather than just moving toward the pain, and there's different options. You can breathe with the pain, you can breathe into the pain, you can breathe around the pain, you can breathe like the pain, but you're breathing pain Mm -hmm. without a story attached to it. And um, that's it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A ball thrown into water. Because as soon as you feel the pain, you go, oh, there's pain, and then you make it permanent. And then it's happening to a me that's permanent. And that's not moment-to-moment, non-stop flow. So that the suffering is self-generated. Now, the second part of that is, can you see how when there's a lot of distractedness that happens... See, the pain is not a distraction. The pain is an invitation to what's happening. Um, But do you notice how when there's pain arising, wanting shows up. You know, like wanting to get out of this. And that's when the trouble starts because of the wanting. Yeah. So, uh, Leanne. Mm-hmm. I think there's an experience of uh, form dissolving and, for example, the, the lines of the baton in front and, um, uh, and then what went through the mind was, geez, this is dissolving too. And then mm-hmm. um, coming back to the breath, mm-hmm. um, there was a comfort in that because the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the breath being the object of meditation yeah. is there. Yeah. Um, but then also an amusement in that because the breath changes too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. 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 Moment to moment, non stop flow. <laughs> So, your homework was noticing wanting, and whatever you've got going in your life where there's this thing you really want, you're not going to get it. Okay, so if there's the dress you really want, your homework this week was just to not get it. The new car, the new husband, whatever. Um, whatever it is, I want to be a mother. You know, I want to be a mother. I want to have a baby. You know, so there's this desire. I want to have a baby. You know, now I'm this age and I want to breastfeed or have that experience. And that's such a natural uh, thought to have. And there's no problem in the thought. And then the mind comes in, but there's no one in my life, or there is, but they don't want to have a child, you know. Um, The problem, there's no problem, but the problem occurs when that thought 
keeps happening and we start contracting around it. You see? And then the thought is so filled with wanting that we start creating so much pressure. And then we start and then the whole thing's like this load we're carrying around. This is problematic. Um, I noticed in that transition stage, you know, when you go to college, the, um, the thought and then the releasing of it, mm-hmm. I get very frustrated. Yeah. And just going back to the breath, uh-huh. like feeling the sensation, like you're feeling lost or Yeah. Not even concentrating, just allowing it to uh-huh. be. It felt like a, um, a pressure that was being released. Yeah. And it was just that way to go. Yeah. It was a really good sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because the, the pressure is from the wanting, the meditation, to make you calm. Or, or whatever you're imagining it's supposed to be. Yeah, and <coughs> that's where the frustration like. Yeah. So interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Again, again, this line from the Buddha... But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight, and revel in their place to see, and again, not the ground, but this ground of this moment. The pressure valve is released when the viewpoint is seen. And so you see the way that you're filtering what you're noticing. Did you hear the, the, what I was saying in the instruction was that mindfulness is characterizing, characterized by a lack of commentary. Mm-hmm. So if you're sitting, talking to yourself about how the sitting is going, mm-hmm. it's not mindfulness of breathing. Okay? That's still chitta vritti. Mm-hmm. The fluctuations of chitta, which is your imagination. Wanting. That's Wanting. So for Patanjali, the essence of seeing through dukkha is seeing how we misidentify with the chitta-vrittis. And for the Buddha, the essence of the suffering is seeing that that misidentification is based on wanting. Second of the truth. Wanting. Tana. Craving. Yeah. Stephen Batchelor has a nice way of teaching this. He says, This is desire, and this is suffering. And that's why I keep this image up here, painted by Shogyam Trempa, of the Tibetan uh, um, myth that describes the hungry ghosts. Okay? So this reminds us that your desires are endless and they can't ever be satisfied. They can't ever be satisfied. They can't ever be satisfied. 
I'm watching this television show called Mad Men. Okay? Are you, are you watching this? Heavens no. And the main character, <laughs> Donald, <laughs> Donald Draper, you know, he, he, um, he was fighting in a war and he saw an opportunity to um, fake dead and switch identities. And they call this deserting. And so he escaped his life. He escaped his life and reinvents himself, but then it comes back to haunt him. You know? And I think for all of us, we're haunted in some way by the energy we've spent in our lives trying to escape our lives. The amount of money we've spent, the, the, the amount of failed relationships of hurt because we've been trying to escape who we are. And that's why the Buddha is saying, this goes against the stream, this teaching. The, it goes against that momentum of desire. And then when you see that this realm of the hungry ghosts, that all these ghosts are hungry, and that nothing you feed them is ever going to satisfy them. Kobun Roshi says, then naturally you sit down for a while. <laughs> then naturally you sit down for a while. One of my teachers, Richard Freeman, says that yoga begins when you burn out on the culture. Yoga begins when you see that the culture is the hungry ghost and then it burns you out. I have this experience sometimes after I do lots of practice. This summer I had this experience, you know, this summer I had the chance, because our son's five now, although he will be tomorrow. And so I have this time now that I haven't had for five years. And um, so I'm trying to practice very efficiently so I can use the time. One of the things I've been contemplating is how there was a time in my life or there are times in my life, especially when I'm bothered, <coughs> where certain cultural um, forms, like pop songs, have a lot of meaning. Certain classical music pieces, or certain paintings, or installation pieces, have a lot of meaning, and they raise my awareness up to a place and we, and we turn to the culture for this sometimes. You know? But then I found that sometimes after a lot of practice, where there's a real quietude and silence, that those same cultural forms actually bring consciousness down. And it's a really interesting thing to see that sometimes the form can interrupt our viewpoint so that we can see. Good art does this, right? It screws up your perspective. An M.C. Escher drawing. You've seen it a billion times. It's on every postcard at the Louvre, you know. 
But when you really look at it, it turns you inside out. You know, it's wonderful. Agrees or. But then there's other points where um, you can contact in the natural world such quietness and truth that um, the cultural forms just seem like more simple manipulations. And that's why the Buddha says those immersed in wanting you know, like turning on the pop song to get a hit of something mm-hmm. because you're so distracted. Mm-hmm. You can't find that by looking around at everything. Even boredom starts to become so interesting. So I'll read one more passage and then uh, I'll give you some homework. Um, this is another cultural piece that we've all read probably hundreds of times Um, so this time when I read it I want you to really listen Um, this is from the Tao Te Ching this is the ninth paragraph (coughs) from Lao Tzu fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt Chase after money and security, and your heart will never unclench. Is anybody watching the news today? Stock market is going downhill very fast. One time a relative of mine who was very wealthy, in one night, lost everything. And he was a mess for like two decades after all his money was in a certain stock. It's like in the early 70s. And he, he lost everything. And when you have a lot of money, it tends to be that your identity is wrapped up in that process. How is he now? He's dead now. Oh. Yeah, he had a heart attack when he was, I think, 58. Did he ever go through any kind of spiritual experience after that? or After his death? No. <laughs> <laughs> after the hardship of what happened? Well, I would call that a spiritual awakening. Yeah. And at the time, it was a nervous breakdown. Mm. Mm-hmm. Fill your bowl to the brim and it will spill. Keep sharpening your knife and it will blunt. Chase after money and security and your heart will never unclench. Care about people's approval and you will be their prisoner. Do your work, then step back. The only path to serenity. Do your work and then step back. The only path to serenity. If I wrote that, I would say, the path of serenity. The path is serenity. But not the serenity you think is serenity. But the serenity that just happens naturally when the heart unclenches because there's no wanting. It's like that muscle that we call the brain that's always been around. It's like, oh, she's beautiful. 
Oh, that dog is so sweet. The next thing you know, you've taken it home. (laughs) I had a friend, Wendy Doniger, who's a great scholar of yoga. And um, I spent some time with her out in Cape Cod, 2003. We sat on the beach. She had just recovered from breast cancer. And we were sitting on the beach, and she was talking about how she's realizing now that her son is older, and that she has breast cancer, that she is never going to breastfeed again. And she was very sad, this thought. It's visceral for her. You're never going to breastfeed again. And then just as she was saying this, a woman came, sat down on the beach right in front of us, and lifted up her bathing suit and started nursing. And I'm thinking, shit, this is like the worst thing. (laughs) And, uh, And then it was like her tears dried up. And then she turned to me and she said, just realize other women are going to breastfeed. That other women, you see, the desire is there, but the wanting stopped. Wow, other women are going to breastfeed. And then it's like, I can still have the desire but the me is not entangled in it because of the wanting. So, if you really want, right now, a brand new, I don't know, stainless steel um, refrigerator, (laughs) I have one, and it's like the worst refrigerator I've ever had. A stainless steel, which is basically a regular refrigerator with $400 of stainless steel glued to the front of it um, so that you can see yourself every time you go to the fridge. That's why we bought it. It's just a practice. And um, you can be happy that other people are going to be able to afford that. You don't need to have that. Other people can afford that. They can buy that. And I'm so happy for my neighbor who's just bought whatever. The person beside you at the cubicle (coughs) next to you gets a promotion and you're so happy for them that now they get Donald Draper's job. (laughs) So, your homework Sit every day for 20 minutes. Set a timer where you can't see with a little buzzer so that the timer is timing the 20 minutes while you sit and notice the breath. And then the time of 20 minutes becomes a container so that whatever arises in the 20 minutes, you watch its impermanence and you breathe it and then the buzzer goes off, and then you say thank you, and then you get up. You need the timer 
to contain the sitting, or you'll just follow your whims, and then you won't work with the patterns that are going to arise when your body gets used to 20 minutes. Because somewhere at the 17-minute mark, we'll offer you little surprises. So let's finish by chanting in English. (coughs) Thank <coughs> you.